Hi, folks. Welcome to the Man Overseas podcast, where we talk about self-development and investing. I'm coming to you from San Miguel de Allende this week. It's a beautiful part of Mexico. I had pictures here uh, taken here last week, and the reason is because iTunes requires cover art, and I didn't know that. Um, but I went to iTunes, and I searched for a few of my favorite podcasters, and sure enough, their mug is right there at the top of all their episodes. So there I was prancing around doing a photo shoot. By the way, if you want to make a straight man uncomfortable, put him in the street doing candid photos and posing for camera, posing for the camera. It's, it's just really weird. I didn't like it. Not a fan. I think it's the fakery of it. Like if someone has to give you the directive to act natural, then I'm probably not going to act natural. <laughs> so it reminds me of a story. When I was in college, I was taking a, a sales class and the professor had us do a role play. And this role play counted as half our exam. The other part was written. Well, one of the things we were graded on as part of this role play was rapport building. So he wanted us to walk into his office. He had the tripod set up, so he, he was recording it. And he wanted us to shake his hand and immediately start rapport to build rapport. So I walk in and I see that he's got a, a picture of his kid playing baseball. So I say, oh, I see you're a baseball fan. I actually play baseball here at the university. And I could tell he was surprised by what I was saying. And so he goes, oh, you play baseball. What, um, what position um, do you play? And he knew I played baseball. <laughs> he had even been to a few games. So the next week, I get my grade on the role play, and I did well, but I was docked points for rapport building. So I go to the professor's office, and I ask him, like, why did you dock why did you dock points for the rapport building part of the interview or the mock sales call? And he said, well, it was good, but I think that you could work on it a little bit. It, just, it didn't seem natural. And I'm like, what? Dude, you were the one being awkward, <laughs> not me. Um, so I asked other people in the class, like, hey, what'd you do for the rapport building part of the role play? And they were like, oh, well, I just made something up. Like I, I said that I had kids too, or I, I saw the baseball picture and I said that I love baseball, even though I don't. <laughs> so uh, I think me being real just kind of threw the, prof the professor off. <laughs> but I, I just don't like fakery. I don't like when I have to act. <laughs> All that is to say, I'm waiting on the Man Overseas logo to be embedded into the picture, the one where I'm acting the most natural. And then the podcast should be up on iTunes probably second week of April, if I had to guess. So it'll be searchable on iTunes, something I'm really looking forward to. Friends, I have an excellent guest today. She's my longtime friend. I've known her since the spring of 1995. So if she and I don't have a good rapport, <laughs> then the professor was right about me. Um, her name is Laura Guillory. She spent 15 years in advertising and marketing between New York City and Houston. And then she got a real estate license uh, three years ago and started flipping houses. So we're going to talk about house flipping. Also, she helps buyers and sellers. So we'll get into some other real estate talk too, I'm sure. Um, but I'm really excited about this episode. Let me introduce Laura Guillory. Laura, welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. How are you? Hey, good. Thanks good. for the intro. Yeah, you sound great. How is that microphone working for you? Uh, good now, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound good. Um, for listeners, when you're doing a podcast, you need a good microphone. And since Laura didn't have one, I sort of, I sent her on a scavenger hunt to get the microphone that she's using. Uh, before I left Houston, I gave her clues as to how she could find the mic. And it was like in my backyard behind the second plant next to the banana tree. <laughs> um, so it was quite a, an ordeal, but I'm glad you found it. Yes, me too. Thank yeah. you. You borrow it. Sure. We have a whole hour to talk about real estate. Are you pumped? Yes, of course. It's what I live for. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, there's a lot to house flipping. There's a lot to know. So I thought we would focus on those who want to get into flipping. Mm -hmm. either, either they haven't done one or maybe they've done a few and they're listening so that they can learn more because I understand that there's a lot to learn. Is that right? There is. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I want to know, everybody wants to know about the money. Is it easy to make money house flipping? 
Uh, it can be, yes, if you know what you're doing. But if you don't know what you're doing, um, you can easily kind of lose your shirt on it. So it's important to do a lot of uh, research and studying going into it and um, having a good network to work with. Okay. Otherwise, it'll be like Mardi Gras and you'll just lose your shirt. <laughs> that could happen, yes. <laughs> I hear you. Well, what made you want to get into house flipping? Was it the the money? It was the money and being able to control my own schedule, do my own thing. Um, I'm also really into interior design and um, architecture. And um, my mom is a remodeling contractor. So I, you know, grew up around her and designing homes and just kind of always had that as a bug within me that I wanted to do it. And um, I'm a big fan, kind of like you are, of, you know, working my own schedule, doing my own thing kind of setting my own course. And um, after working in advertising for so long and being stuck to an office all day, every day, the thought of, you know what, I can kind of set my own schedule and do my own thing was just really appealing to me. And, um, you know, thanks to HGTV, you see so many people that seem to have great success with it. And um, so I just wanted to, to try it out. And so that's why I first got my license my real estate license um, was so that I could have access to all the behind the scenes information and intelligence and the MLS and be able to comb through listings and figure out um, what are some good opportunities to be able to flip and then not have to spend as much in commissions. And I could get in to go see the houses on my own and do all of that. So that was why I first got my license and um, you know, it just kind of took off from there. That's cool. Two things you said there that I think are interesting. Uh -huh. You were inspired by HT, HGTV and that you have a background in interior design. You kind of grew up with it, I guess, right? Since your mom was involved in, in interior design. What would people need to know or what background would be the best to have to get into house flipping, do you think? Well, it's a few things. And I think that's a really good question, Brad. Um, I, I think Financial money management, um, how to set a budget is really important when it comes to house flipping. And we can talk more about that. Um, also having knowledge of the construction process is really important. And then third, I think interior design and just the aesthetics of what buyers or people are looking for. Mm -hmm. I think all three of those have to really work hand in hand together. The construction, the design, and the budget management, um, construction and working with uh, contractors. So it's it's several pieces of having that knowledge and um, it, that makes it really important. Yeah. So you being inspired by HGTV, do you think that that increased the competition for properties? Because I'm sure a lot of people were inspired by HGTV. Oh, absolutely. You know, everyone thinks they can be an overnight house flipper. And um, you probably heard the commercials on the radio like I have about all these seminars you can go to and they'll teach you how to make quick money flipping houses. And there's all kinds of um, online books you can purchase and articles out there. There's a wealth of uh, information out there online and on TV between DIY Network, HGTV. Um, so I think it's made it harder for people like me who I don't do a huge volume of flipping because I'm very particular. I'm very picky about which properties I take on. Um, people um, are able to buy a whole lot of properties and they can even hold on to them if they feel like it's not as viable to flip it right away. Um, I'm not one of those types of people. I buy one at a time. I flip it. I sell it. I move on. I go on to the next project. So, um, cause I, I try to mitigate how much risk I take on at one time, mm -hmm. but it definitely makes it more competitive trying to get in and buy a house if it's a good property. What are the keys to successful house flipping? Do you think? I think it's first practicing running the numbers on it and, um, knowing what you're looking for. Um, for me, I've got different criteria that I search for online in the MLS and, um, on Zillow. So I think you have to just really get very comfortable with running the numbers on it. So, I mean, I think that's one of the keys to it. We can talk more about those numbers if you want to. Um, and having a really good crew is very important also, your contractors, because you hear horror stories all the time about 
contractors running off with your money or not doing what they said they would do, being behind schedule, costing you more in the end. Um, so having a crew that you really know and you trust, I think that's another key to success with house flipping. Mm-hmm. And um, again, what I mentioned before about you've just got to know your budget and um, really know the aesthetics of what people are looking for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the MLS and Zillow. Mm-hmm. Do you need to be licensed to access both of those? Um, Zillow, you don't. Um, I don't believe. I mean, I I remember going in Zillow before I had my license and looking around on there. Um, I spend most of my time in the MLS and that you do need to have a license or know somebody who does have a license to be able to log in to the system on the back end and be able to get the sold information, you know, where we are in Texas, Texas is a non-disclosure state. So unless you have a license, you can't see what property is sold for because um, that information is not disclosed. So that's something that's really important, I think, when you're looking at comparable properties to know what something could potentially sell for to be able to see that sold data. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important. So you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier setting your own schedule. Is flipping houses something that can be done as a side hustle? That's kind of tricky. It depends, I think, on the level of work that you're doing on the house. Um, Some flips can be really quick flips and they're more cosmetic. You know, you're just going in and ripping out carpet, changing that, doing some paint, changing countertops and putting it back on the market. If it's something that's a really quick cosmetic flip, then sometimes that could be a side hustle because you don't have to be there and babysit a crew, so to speak, as much. Um, Or you could even do it yourself. You know, some flippers do a lot of the work themselves. You could do that kind of stuff on weekends or after hours. Uh, But if it's a major remodel with a lot of construction, Mm -hmm. it might be harder to do as a side hustle just because inevitably there's a lot of questions, a lot of issues that can come up that require a lot of your time to be there. So unless you have a really flexible job where you could leave and go visit with your workers and, you know, kind of troubleshoot together and figure out situations, that'd be a little bit harder to do, I think, as a side hustle. So it's, it depends on kind of, I think, the level of work that you're doing to the house. Yeah, that's a good answer. Let's say I'm in my car listening to this podcast and I've always mm-hmm. wanted to do a flip. I love the idea of a project where I can buy something for $200,000, put in $25,000 of work and then sell it for two hundred fifty. But I don't know where to start. Where do I start with house flipping? So what I would do is first think about what price range of home you can be able to afford to buy fix it up, hold on to it, you know, and that's, that's a big piece is all your holding costs mm-hmm. and have time on market to sell it. So you first kind of have to figure out, okay, what price point am I comfortable taking on? And, um, and some of that depends on whether you're taking out a loan to buy the house or if you're using cash to buy the house, but you can usually figure out that piece pretty quickly at what price point you're comfortable at. So once you know your price point, you know, then you look at, okay, well, what neighborhoods have homes in those prices mm-hmm. and which ones have, I think, decent schools uh, because you're thinking about resale. Everything is all about the resale of the house because you're not going to be living in this house. You're going to be selling it. So everything is geared towards selling on the back end. So you want a house that's going to be desirable in a neighborhood that's close to you know mass transit. So highways, things that are easy to get to um, different places of work, closer to grocery stores or healthcare facilities. Um, and you want an older neighborhood that is in the process of being slowly improved mm-hmm. or by, but not overtaken by new construction. Um, because if there's a lot of new construction in a neighborhood that can sometimes hurt those homes that are older and remodeled that aren't new. So um, you just kind of have to look at, and this is where the MLS data comes in, what's been increasing in value in the neighborhood, what's not increasing. Um, you have to look at a lot of maps and figure out what's around it. So it's, it's a lot of different criteria that you need to evaluate. And that's where what I was talking about earlier with practicing is really important. And that's something that somebody can do 
that can be kind of a side hustle is just doing the practicing and running the numbers before you even jump into it. And that's something I would really recommend people do. I probably do that exercise of looking at homes and running the numbers on it and seeing how valuable it is 20 times before I even put an offer on a house. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask that. How many do you view versus how many do you offer on versus how mm -hmm. many do you buy? What, what is that ratio like? Yeah, well, it's kind of a funnel, you know, so you look online at probably hundreds of properties. And what I do is a lot of times I set up alerts in the MLS for homes that meet that criteria. So ones that are in that price point that have the decent schools that are older homes, um, you know, that are close, like I was saying, to kind of good, the schools, the highways, um, hospitals, restaurants, where the neighborhood's holding value, I get alerts on those. And I may get hundreds of alerts because I'm tracking quite a few different neighborhoods. So anything that comes up, I'll look at it online. And then I look at aerial photos on Google. So I look at Google Maps and figure out, okay, are there power lines behind it? Is there industrial behind it? You know, anything that would be undesirable from a resale standpoint. Mm -hmm. so I just kind of go start going through my list. And I mark off any that don't look good or ones that do look good. I flag those. And then I start running the numbers on it to figure out, okay, what would my holding costs be on this house? How much work based on the photos online does it look like it's going to need? You know, is this a $20,000 remodel? Is this a $100,000 remodel? What are remodeled homes of that caliber selling for in that neighborhood? And that's why you need that sold data. And if it looks like it would make sense, then... I schedule appointments to go look at the ones in person that look like they could be most viable. And so kind of work your way down that funnel, you know, as it next down. And once I walk through it, I take my phone and I take a lot of pictures. I take a lot of videos walking through the house because a lot of times you'll miss things the first time around when you walk through a property or you'll get later on, Oh, wait, did it have this? Did it have that? What kind of floor was in this room? So it's really important to take a lot of pictures, take a lot of videos, because sometimes what you see online can be deceptive or it doesn't show everything. Yeah. And I make notes sometimes as I walk through and take those pictures and take those videos and I'll say, okay, this countertop needs to be replaced or this wall would be awesome if we could open this up or this bathroom needs a new shower. Whatever it is, I make notes so that later I can go back to my spreadsheet and my budget and start putting in placeholder costs for all those things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ha having done this several times and knowing contractors, I can get some pretty good ballpark bids for what I think things are going to cost. And so I start adding it up. Sometimes I'll go back and take a second look at a property and I'll even call the listing agent, figure out, okay, do they have any offers working on the house? What's the story on it? How's the foundation? How's the roof? How are the windows? I try to get as much information as I can about the integral components of the house. Mm -hmm. Figure out, okay, what do I really have to replace? And um, how much is this house really worth? What could I sell it for? What could I buy it for? It's just running a lot of these quick numbers. And then, um, you know, sometimes I wait on it and see if it helps to... Um, wait to make an offer because sometimes prices will go down and then, you know, sellers get kind of desperate and they'll be willing to take a little bit lower offer if I wait. Um, but it's kind of a hot neighborhood and things are selling quickly. Sometimes I don't have that luxury and I have to move quickly. So it's just looking at um, days on market, what things typically sell for, how fast they sell. It's all of, it's a lot of pieces. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to, to price ranges that you can afford. How do you fund the deal? How do you go to a bank and say, I think I can afford a loan for $200,000. Here's my credit. Here are my pay stubs. Like, where do you start there? Yeah, that's a good question. If you don't have the cash in the bank to do this all that way, where you can just, you know, outright <laughs> buy it, mm -hmm. um, finding a really good lender partner is important. And not all lenders will do loans for something like this. Um, typically, my loans, when I do it, it's set up as a construction loan. 
So it's not your typical 30-year mortgage or 15-year note. Um, it's a construction loan, which sometimes can carry higher interest rates. So you have to be careful about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you have good credit or decent credit, you've got some money in the bank, maybe not enough money to buy the house, but if you've got some money, you know, those things help. And like you were saying, your pay stubs, if you've got steady um, income, that helps as well. And it's all about kind of building that rapport, like you were talking about earlier on, um, with your lender and having that trust there and working out the details of what they're able to loan you. So, um, you know, and like I said, I try to be kind of conservative. I've worked my way up over time with the homes that I take on. And I would say, don't try to overextend yourself, especially on your first few, because there will probably be costs that come up that you're what not do you mean, work your way up. Sorry to interrupt you, but what do you mean by work your way up? Um, I, I mean, like if you think, okay, I can afford a hundred thousand dollar house, maybe you don't buy a hundred thousand dollar house, you know, be a little conservative buy an $80,000 house, for example, and then see how that flip goes. And by the way, most people say your, your goal on your first flip should be to break even because it's so difficult to manage all of these pieces that if you can break even on your first flip, that's actually considered a good thing. Yeah. So I would err on the side of being conservative. And if you do okay on your first one, maybe your next house, your next flip is the $100,000 house or $120,000. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just be, I would be careful like how much you take on at one time. And that's what I mean by kind of work your way up. Don't start with, I'm going to flip a $500,000 house. Mm -hmm. um, the bank says you could maybe do that. I would err on the side of being a little bit more conservative, a little more cautious. Okay. Are there typically larger margins in the lar in the higher priced homes, like a half million versus a hundred thousand? There can be. Um, I mean, there's good deals out there anywhere. So, I mean, I've I've heard of some of my other flipping buddies who made 30 grand off of a hundred thousand dollar flip. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. And then other people will make 30 grand on that $500,000 house. Um, so it's, it's all about the buy on the front end, actually. Um, that's really where you make your money. And that's why running those numbers, like I was talking about and practicing kind of what works, what doesn't work and getting all your ducks in a row up front is so, so important so that when you make that offer, you feel really confident that you can be able to hold on to this house for as long as you need to, to get the work done. You can afford to keep it on market for as long as you need to um, in order to sell it. You said earlier that we could talk more about budgeting and numbers if I want to. Mm -hmm. And I do. Yeah. So um, okay. what rules of thumb numbers wise do you use that have helped you to be successful? So one of the big rules that you'll kind of see um, or kind of rules of thumb online if you search for house flipping is what's called a 70% rule. And that helps you determine how viable a house is to flip it. So the 70% rule is it kind of calculates the maximum you should pay for a house once you factor in the after repair value or what you'll sometimes see referred to as the ARV and the repair costs. So you basically take 70% of what you think the after repair value cost is and subtract out your rehab costs. And that gives you how much you should pay for the house. Thank you. So for example, if you think your after repair value is $100,000, and your rehab costs you think are around 20000 Well, according to the 70% rule, the most you should then pay for that property is $50,000. And so you'll see that rule out there. And I use that as kind of my back of the envelope, you know, quick math that I do when I analyze a house. Not always viable to, you know, pay exactly that amount because it could be a popular area or one that's really increasing or there's a lot of investors eyeing it and you can't get it for that low of a cost, but it at least gives you some ballpark for where you should be. And it tells you, okay, if my 70% rule says that I shouldn't pay more than 50,000 for this, you know, should I extend myself and pay 80,000 for it? Eh, probably not. But if I could get it for 55 or 60, I might be able to make this work. Yeah. 
You said that you never do more than one flip at a time. What if you came across two smoking deals in your inbox? How would you manage that? Uh, that's a good question. And I, I've been in that scenario before, actually. And uh, I just, I had to pick, I just had to pick one because I also work with buyers and sellers. Um, you know, this it, flipping isn't my only thing I do. So I, I'm also busy with client work. So I can't always take on more than one. Um, but yeah, if I have two really smoking hot properties that, you know, look like they could really work, I just have to kind of pick one and focus on that one instead. So whichever one of the two ultimately makes the most sense, go with that one. That'd be a good reason to choose you as a realtor because you're always scouring deals and you might have one that you're not able to jump on. And then somebody who is an investor that's looking for a property, you could just help them buy that property, right? Right. <laughs> well, thanks. I like to think so. Um, yeah. I think it certainly helps me as a realtor with buyers or sellers with, you know, preparing their house, you know, with knowing what buyers are looking for, if you're a seller or if you're a buyer, you know, sometimes people can be really hesitant to take on a house that needs work or be scared to do any remodeling. And, um, you know, I can assure them that, you know, it's not as bad as you think. And, you know, I can give them contacts for who they can use to get the work done. And I can give them ideas of things they can do that may not cost as much money, but will make a big difference. Well, let's talk more about making offers. So as we said, it can be very competitive. Are there ways to differentiate your offer? I mean, I like what you said about knocking on doors and that would certainly get your foot in the door first and possibly your offer in there first and maybe to the exclusion of all other offers. But there are there ways in a competitive situation that you could differentiate your offer? I think being truthful, being genuine, being upfront with people, um, there's a lot of, there's a reputation, I think, within flipping and investing that there's a lot of shady people out there and uh, people who are just looking to make a quick buck and kind of swindle you out of your house. And so I think if you come across as like as a professional and respectful and nice and, hey, I just want to get this done. I want to take it off your hands. I'd love to buy it. I can close quickly and you're not rude, you're not insulting, um, most people respond pretty well to that. And uh, because there are people who are not nice in this business. So I think that is a way to kind of differentiate yourself. And um, I, I try not to make it seem like I'm hiding anything or I'm, you know, sweeping anything under the rug. I mean, I, I just come right out and say, hey, I want to buy your house and I'm willing to pay X amount for it. And what do you think about that? And I can close this quickly. And most people, I think, really respect that. And um, I'm not trying to play any games with them. That's awesome. That's sales 101, kind of, right? You want to mm -hmm. get in front of the client and build a relationship with them, build rapport, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the key right there. And I mean, I've even stopped people in their front yard. <laughs> yeah. If I'm driving by or, uh, you know, some of the neighborhoods, I've even, you know, gone jogging in the neighborhood and I'll just, I'll see somebody in the driveway and I'll say, hey, you know, what are you, are you thinking about selling your house? And um, just strike up a conversation with them and get that rapport going and let them know that even if they may not want to sell it right now, that I'd be interested if it was six months from now or a year from now, because if I've got another flip going on since I only take them one at a time, I may not even be able to take it on at that moment anyway. But just to get it on the radar is is great. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, since you're in, since you're acting almost as a salesperson in building rapport, you want to increase your number of at bats, right? Going making another mm -hmm. baseball reference, and so the more that you can knock on doors, there's so many people who aren't going to be willing to do that. By the way, so that's mm -hmm. really awesome that you're doing it. Where did you get that idea? You know that I don't know. I think I've just learned over time since I've been doing this for several years now that like you were saying, it's a numbers game. You know, anytime you're in a sales job, uh, it's, it's all about more touch points, how many people you talk to, who you talk to, how often you talk to them. And I've just realized that more and more over the last several years. Um, you know, one of my, you know, kind of people that I look up to professionally, <laughs> believe it or not, is Sarah Blakely, who's the woman who's the founder of Spanx. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know much about her, but she's got a pretty phenomenal story. And, you know, I don't want to go too much into a sidebar on this, but 
Um, I mean, she started Spanx out of her apartment in Atlanta and I mean, knew nobody and was calling on Neiman Marcus and calling on, you know, these huge department stores when she had this idea of, you know, cutting the feet out of her tights so that she could have leggings under her pants and knew nobody. And she just had courage, you know, off the charts. And because she was so confident and so personable and so likable, she opened so many doors for herself. And um, now Spanx, I don't even know what it's valued at at this point, but it's still privately held company. And um, she's, I think, one of the richest women entrepreneurs in the country. And uh, it's just, I think it's a very phenomenal story. And she's done a lot of podcasts herself about her story and her background. And so she's one of those people that I think has kind of inspired me. And just reading a lot on real estate and on sales, you hear that over and over again, that it's all like you're talking about the at-bats and those contacts that you have and getting out there and getting in front of people. That makes all the, all the difference. Absolutely. You want to be successful, build your interpersonal skills, decide that there is nobody who is going to have more face-to-face meetings than me. I love right. that. Absolutely. And what I tell myself, you know, sometimes if I feel like my confidence is lacking, I say, what is the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is somebody says, no, that's it. And you walk away and you move on to the next person. And if you know that up front, that that's the worst thing that can happen, then why not try? Because I have found that my biggest regrets when it comes to working with clients, when it comes to working for myself with buying flip houses is the things I regret the most are the opportunities that I didn't take. And the person that I decided not to call or the door I decided not to knock on or that listing agent I didn't check back in with of, you know, did they get another offer? Should I go ahead and get my offer in? It's those things that eat me up later that I did not do that I'm like, man, if I had just tried, who knows? Like I could have bought that house. I could have gotten a really good deal on it. And um, so it's just that's what helps motivate me and helps inspire me to do it and keep moving forward. That's awesome. I'm the same way. No fires me up. (laughs) Uh, You know, no just gives me fuel. So I I love that. And I couldn't agree more. And then on the macro at the end of your life, you're going to regret more the things that you didn't try than the ones. I mean, you hear this all the time. You're You're going to regret more the things you didn't try than the ones that you did try and failed. So keep trying, get more at bats, you will succeed eventually. Persistence trumps everything. And right. 90% of people, your competition doesn't have the same persistence as you. So you have these rules to live by, like decide there's nobody who's going to get more face-to-face meetings than me. So that kind of right. stuff. Yeah, you're, you're going to have success. I love that. Um, mm-hmm. Do you like the negotiating part of real estate? I love it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. Um, Let's talk about negotiating for a bit, because I know that it can be intimidating for people and some people are really turned off by it. Like for Christmas, I went to get my parents a picture for their wall and it had a price tag on it. I was at uh, Pier 1 and it had a price tag of like $149. And the sales lady came over and I said, I'm interested in this this artwork. Um, Would you accept $100 for it? And she was like, oh, is that what we're doing now? We're wheeling and dealing. I was like, um, sure, if that's what you want to call it, will you accept $100? And they knocked 15% off the price just because I asked. <laughs> but right. by her response, I could tell that she did not like what I was doing. Um, so we, our culture is not such that we do a lot of negotiating. And I think that that probably plays a part in why people don't like it. But I would say that even if you're not in business, it would behoove everyone to study negotiating because we're all dealing with people no matter what line of work we're in, right? And when you're dealing with people on some level, you're negotiating, whether you realize it or not. So I encourage people to get some, get educated a little bit about negotiating. Don't be afraid of it because negotiating is such a big part of real estate. If you're going to get involved in flipping, you're negotiating all the time. So one of the questions I have for you is that obviously you're going to be negotiating properties, but are you also negotiating with plumbers and carpenters and and painters i mean is it a, a constant negotiation with all the people involved oh it's constant yes it, it absolutely is so you have to learn how to 
kind of size someone up very quickly and yeah. figure out what's their motivation and what's going to get them to work with you, to want to work with you, continue to partner with you, but also give you the best possible rates they can. Um, because sometimes, you know, you don't want to go with the, the cheapest guys because there's a reason why they're the cheapest, but you also can't afford to pay the most expensive guys. So you've got to find, you know, the good middle of the road um, contractors, you know, kind of the, the Hondas and the Toyotas out there, you know, like yeah. the people are going to, you know, just be dependable and um, work, put in the long days, the long hours. And uh, so it's constant negotiations. And um, you know, I'm the type where I usually, I pay my workers every week, you know, Friday's payday cash is king for a lot of these guys. They want cash. And, uh, so I pay them in cash as long as they have done what they needed to get done that week. And there's benchmarks we set each week. Um, I give them cash and usually a case of beer on Fridays. So, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, just to, you know, continue that rapport and have fun with them and let them know that, you know, I like to have fun with this too. And, um, and they really appreciate it and they'll come through. If there's an emergency, they'll come back and help me out because they know that I'm good for it. And I'm not one of those people that's going to string them along. Um, and I'll be loyal to them. I'll give them business over and over again, as long as they, they treat me right. And, uh, it's a good relationship. So it's, it's constant negotiating and knowing what's important to them and what's important to you and setting that straight from the beginning is really important. And, you know, a lot of times when I start a negotiation, I don't start by making demands and requests. I ask a lot of questions up front to not only get information, but to figure out motivations, figure out what their interests are, what's important to them, because those are all things that I can use later on when I'm negotiating, when I'm making my requests. Um, I have found with negotiating, if you come in with lists of demands up front, it will immediately turn people off. Um, but if you come in with, hey, how can I, how can we get this deal done together? What's important to you? Uh, what's of most value to you? How can we work together. If you come in with a very collaborative mindset and, hey, I'm here to make you happy too, most people love to hear that. And then they're going to be much more receptive to then when you say, hey, you know, we need this or can I request this or whatever, because you've already got that rapport there and you've shown your willingness to give things of value to them, they're much more open to giving you things of value back. That is so good. And that's great advice. Start with questions. What is important to them? Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I see in negotiations is that people approach it as if it's adversarial, as though you're negotiating against them, but you're not. You're negotiating with them. And in a good Absolutely. negotiation, everybody wins. So even good negotiators appreci appreciate when the other person is a good negotiator because they will have that win-win mindset too. Mm -hmm. And there is, if you get further into studying negotiation, you realize that your starting leverage is very important. And the ability to emotionally detach yourself, which you've talked about, is very important. Um, you'll be able to size people up better with experience, as you talked about, which is, are you dealing with a person of integrity? because you can't do a, a good deal with a bad guy. Um, can you avoid giving unilateral concessions? A, a unilateral concession is where you give something up without getting anything in return. These are all things that can be studied. And once you start practicing it, you'll gain more experience and you'll be more effective. Like one of the things that you can, that you can work on that people probably don't think of is that if you start paying attention to micro expression like facial micro expressions you that can save you so much time <laughs> i don't know is that something you ever pay attention to like little micro expressions on people's faces that way you know you can almost like read what they're thinking and help you to better situate what it is that you're trying to accomplish Does, is that, am i making any sense yes yes yeah. absolutely yeah. and that really helps to talk to people face to face yes right? you can read so much more in body language, like you're talking about in those micro expressions, if you can get in front of people. Yes. And actually, some of the best deals I've had have been ones where we got to negotiate face to face. 
Um, just like you hear with cyberbullying and things like that online, people can be much more aggressive behind a keyboard. Yes. Um, but if you get in front of them, things can soften up quite a bit. And it's amazing where a conversation can go face to face. And actually, in one of my real estate courses that was specifically on negotiating, they even made a point to say that if you are making an offer on a home, by all means possible, try to present that offer in person. Yeah. Do not send it through email as the first introduction. Send it or bring it in person and talk through it. And it's amazing what a difference that is than just sending something off blindly, how well it, how it can be perceived. So true. I give people the same advice. If you can't do it face-to-face, -face, do it by phone. If you can't do it by phone, try again to do it face-to-face. -face. But uh, doing it by email or text should be an absolute last resort. Right tips that you can think of that somebody who maybe didn't take a class on negotiating mm -hmm. would get without having to go and read an entire book <laughs> or take a class? Right. I, I think finding what is of particular value to your, your partner that you're negotiating with, finding out what's of value to them up front is really important. Um, so in real estate, a lot of times if I'm making an offer on a house, whether it's for myself, flip a house, or for a client, I will ask the listing agent, okay, other than price, what is important to the sellers? And it's amazing what kind of information you will get from somebody. Sometimes it's, you know, they, they really need to stay in their house an extra three months if they can. They need a lease back. You know, they're not ready to move for XYZ reasons, or they... Um, you know, it, it could be a number of things that can come up just through having that conversation. And again, this is why it's important to do it in, in, over the phone or in person and not just over email. But find out what's really important to them because what can be kind of amazing about that is a leaseback may be something, if you're a buyer, you don't care about at all. But now you know up front, you've got a huge piece of leverage so important to this, to the seller. And if you can give that to them and it really doesn't bother you at all, that's a huge win for you that you're giving them something that means a whole lot and they may be willing to give you something that's really important to you um, because you've given them that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I, and I like that you called the person you're negotiating with a partner. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. You said it's amazing the amount of information you will get from asking an open-ended question and then doing what I call strategic silence. Many people are not capable of strategic silence and they jump in nervously to fill the gaps and feel like somebody always needs to be talking. But if you will just ask a question and then train yourself to shut up, a lot of times uh, you will get information that helps you in a negotiation. And by the way, if you're negotiating with someone who is a good person, a lot of times they will give you something just because they like you. <laughs> so. Yes, yes, that's very true. And that's why going into it with, you know, open-ended questions, not immediately lists of demands makes a huge difference. Um, and it helps set up from the beginning that this is a partnership, not a um, dictation. <laughs> or a, yeah. You know, and it, it just, it starts the relationship off on a much better foot and paves the way towards collaboration. In a negotiation, people tend to think, my experience anyway, is people tend to think that the other person is in a position of strength. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier about knowing your starting leverage. And I love what you said about taking time to think. Yes, people, people aren't doing that nowadays because any idle moment, they are grabbing their phones. I mean, I'm guilty of it too, but I also schedule time to think and journal because it helps to organize your thoughts and come up with ideas on how to approach situations, which is so key to a good negotiation. And I like what you said about wrapping things up. People want to wrap things up with a bow quickly. I've, I see this, especially now. It's probably a sign of the times with diminishing communication skills but more people are approaching someone who is selling a house or even an item on 
Facebook Marketplace. I saw this. I was trying to sell my car on uh, Facebook Marketplace, and people will say, "Hello, Brad. What is your best and final price?" I'm like, well, "You expect me to negotiate against myself? Like it, it doesn't work like that." So I'm asking twenty grand for my car. You can give me your best and final offer if you want, but my price is twenty thousand dollars. We'll work from that. So I think it's just trying to like, they don't want to go through the process. And like you said, try to wrap it up quickly. And it's like, dude, come on. I'm not just going to negotiate against myself. And you say, what's your best and final? And I say, oh, well, it's 18. Okay, we'll, we'll get this done. It, it just doesn't work that way. So that happens on houses too. Like if you're asking $200,000 for a house and somebody will shoot you an email and say, hi, will you accept 170? But they haven't gone to see the house. They haven't... Um, taken time to write up the contract and they're trying to short circuit the process. And if I'm representing the seller in that situation, that's not something that I'm willing to entertain. How do you think about that? What do you, what do you think? I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, there's a lot of people who try to, uh, you know, kind of bypass the systems in place and try to just get a quick deal done and that's it. And um, inevitably I feel like, if you start out that way, it's, it's going to cause problems later because there's things that have been overlooked and one way or another, by the time you get to the closing table, you know, things, things, there's going to be bumps in the road. And um, if you, if you haven't done the due diligence up front and you don't have things in writing. So um, whenever there are situations like that, I always encourage people, if I'm representing the seller, I say, okay, we'll go take a look, schedule an appointment. And if you want to make an offer, then put the offer in writing <laughs> and discuss it. Um, you know, I'm not going to just bid over the phone or, you know, theoretical numbers. Um, I need to see it actually written down. I need to see proof of funds or a pre-approval letter, whatever it is from the buyers to show that this is legitimate because otherwise it could be a big waste of time. Yeah. How do you think about your network? So a solid network is like a force multiplier that will help you do more with less effort. And there are so many moving parts to a, a real estate deal. If you're just starting, how do you find the people that you want to help you? Well, it depends if you're hiring a general contractor. Um, and if you're hiring a general contractor, a lot of times they have workers who specialize in flooring and in paint and in demo and you know, kind of all the different aspects of construction or remodeling. Or if you are acting as kind of the general contractor yourself and subcontracting out all those specialties. Um, either way, I would say whether you're going the general contractor route or if you're hiring the subs yourself, you absolutely have to check references and check their work. Do not be afraid to ask if you get a name for somebody to go see the work in person and if they're anybody who's anything good, they shouldn't hesitate to give you referrals. Okay. Um, if they shy away from giving you any names of past clients or won't give you an address of a home to see or anything like that, I would be very leery to hire that person. Okay. So you typically... Probably a reason why that the workmanship isn't there or the relationship was severed for whatever reason. Um, so I think having the referrals and seeing the work for yourself is very important. Okay. So do you typically use a GC or general contractor? I've gone both routes, um, where I've kind of GC'd it myself. And then I've also used a general contractor. It just depends on how big the job is. Mm -hmm. um, having a general contractor is nice because they can kind of control the schedule. They have control over their guys and also add an extra layer of cost, an extra layer of complexity. Sometimes you hear about general contractors keeping the money and not paying their guys, and then their guys don't show up. So, um, you know, again, that's where it's really important to check references. So you can search on Facebook, you can search on Google, you can search online for, I mean, there's tons of different workers out there. Ask your neighbors um, again, going face to face, you know, if you see a truck in the neighborhood and it looks like they're doing a good job, get a business card from them, give them a call. Um, I mean, there's a number of ways as to how you can build your roster of workers that you, that you want to work with. Okay. But always check those references, check their work. Okay. Everything that you ever do with them, um, get any agreement in writing. Yeah. Okay. So 
do you have in your head when you walk through a house that a roof is going to cost four to six thousand dollars a plumber is going to cost x and a painter y like do you have a price sheet for that or do you just intuitively sense how much things are going to cost because you're so experienced and if so then how would somebody who's beginning how would they start to learn how much things cost for let's say a 1500 square foot house how much would the roof be or a 3000 square foot house you know like how do you how do you think about that um, yeah, I mean, some of it is just experience, knowing what I've paid for some of those things over time. Um, it's just knowing the kind of market rate for a lot of uh, that work. So when I walk through a house, yeah, I kind of quickly run numbers in my head and I say, okay, if a house needs all new appliances, that's going to be about $8,000. If I need new countertops, that's going to be $3,000. If I need paint throughout this house, that's going to be, uh, you know, depending on the size of the house and how many imperfections there are in the wall and patching texture, that kind of thing that can range quite a bit, but that could be a, you know, five to $20,000 cost, depending on the level of work that needs to be done there. Um, new roof could be $8,000. New windows could be about eight to $10,000. Um, I mean, I'm just kind of throwing out numbers just ballparks, but you know, those are, you know, probably like a 2,000, 2,500 square foot house. Um, so those are all numbers that I just kind of quickly throw into my spreadsheet. When I do that video tour that I was talking about with the pictures, mm -hmm. I put those in my spreadsheet later and say, okay, all of these things add up to say $75,000. So I know that my remodel costs are going to be approximately that much. And then I have to look at my loan with the bank and what my rate is on that loan, what my monthly payments are going to be, um, average days on market for that neighborhood, how long I think the work is going to take. And I have to you know, put that into my spreadsheet also. So if I know it's going to cost me $1,000 a month, and I'm just using ballpark numbers, but $1,000 a month to hold that house. And I think the work is going to take two months. And then I think it's going to need another two months on market before it sells then that's four months. So that's $4,000 of my bank note. Then you've got all your utility costs. So you kind of figure out average utility costs because you have to be able to run electricity. You have to be able to run water. You know, you need to be able to run gas sometimes also if the house has gas service. You have to put all those kind of costs into your spreadsheet. If there's an HOA, what that cost is for the time you own the house. Um, it's, it's kind of, it's a lot of numbers, but you at least have to kind of ballpark it and put those numbers in there and always include some cushion. You know, there's going to be other things that come up that you may not be thinking of um, or that you're not expecting until you start getting into it and realize that there's something there that has to be fixed. Mm -hmm. When do you pay service providers? Um, I pay them typically weekly. Um, are, are you talking about the workers at the house? Yeah. Yeah, so I usually do cash and uh, Friday's payday. <laughs> um, and that's that's kind of been my, my MO. I mean, how I usually work it with the guys is, um, and I find that I get better rates paying in cash too. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm taking draws from the bank, if the bank is helping cover my remodel costs, then I let the bank know in advance, okay, this week, this is what's happening at the house. So I need this much money. And then I get that money out in cash and then meet the workers at the house. I inspect what's been done and I pay them accordingly. And if it hasn't been done, then they don't get paid. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and you get a police escort, I assume, since you're carrying so much cash and you might have to tell them they're not getting paid. <laughs> um, well, if it's just, if it's, well, and that's part of why I do week by week too, because I don't want to have to do a lot of cash at a time. Um, and I'd rather stay on it that closely. I think if you wait to pay people after two or three weeks worth of work, um, it starts to get a little fuzzy on, okay, what were the deliverables during that time frame? And then you're talking more money that you have to then pay out over that, that time frame. Uh, most guys want to get paid every week. Mm -hmm. So I think it just, it helps keep everybody on track a lot more to stay on it on a weekly basis. Yeah. Let's say that you estimate two months for the house that you've rehabbed, uh, two months for it to sell. What point or at what point do you decide to take a loss? 
No one ever wants to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At what point do you decide to take a loss? Yeah, I mean, you've estimated two months and it's gotten to three and a half months, four months, four and a half months. I mean, it's a price, a house will sell. It's just a matter of price. And so maybe, you know, the, the oil you're in Houston, maybe there was a drop in oil prices and a lot of layoffs. And so we had a little bit of a housing slump and you have the prospect of your house staying on the market for seven or eight months. Is there a point at which you're willing to say, I think I'm going to, I'm going to shoot for break even on this one, or I'm going to actually take a five or $10,000 hit so that I can move on to the next one because you said that you're only doing one at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those kind of hard gut check moments, you know, and it's nothing, it's, that's not a situation any flipper wants to be in, but sometimes you, you do find yourself in that position. And uh, I found myself actually in a position like that before because neighborhood that I had a flip house in had experienced some flooding, not from Hurricane Harvey. This was um, during the tax day, Memorial Day flooding that had happened in 2016. Mm-hmm. Now, the house that I was working on, my flip house did not flood because mine was at a higher elevation, but some houses in that neighborhood flooded. And so all market activity basically halted. And then you saw that it looked like a bomb went off in the neighborhood because had, you know, homes that had everything gutted out of their, you know, entire house sitting in the front yard. And it was just crazy. And so no one was wanting to really go look at houses in that neighborhood. And even though mine was high and dry and ready to go and on the market, um, I had no buyers coming by because people just kind of skipped over the neighborhood. And it was totally out of my control because, you know, I I couldn't predict that that flooding was going to happen while I had worked on my house. And it was um, a very nervous time for me. And I was looking at my costs, my holding costs that I had every month that I was paying on that house. You know, I had to keep the house air conditioned, even though it was vacant. I had to keep the lights on for people coming by to take a look at the house. I had to keep the yard mowed. Um, you know, things like that that you don't think about. But every week I was having to pay to maintain that house and paying my loan to the bank. um, So yeah, eventually I had to just keep lowering the cost on the house, the price of the house um, to try to lure in buyers. And knowing that buyers sometimes have alerts set up like how I do for homes they're tracking, I thought, okay, if I just kind of keep inching down the price a little bit, um, hopefully that will trigger some alerts for people who are looking in this neighborhood, nice remodeled home that did not flood. And, um, you know, eventually I got a buyer out of it, but, um, you know, I, I think eventually on that house, I just, I broke even. And what killed me on it was just the holding on it. It wasn't what I bought the house at. It wasn't that I put into it. It was just sitting vacant on market my holding costs eating me up because it, um, cause I didn't have a buyer as quickly as I wanted. And yeah. I'm straight out of my profit paying those holding costs. Um, so yeah, there's, there's two reasons why a house doesn't sell it's price or market conditions. And that's, what I always tell my sellers and tell my buyers is price and market conditions. And only one of those you have control over. Yeah. Um, you know, and I fell prey to market conditions with that particular house because of the flooding and uh, that I, I couldn't control. So all I could do was inch my price down to get rid of it and um, just broke even instead of making um, a little profit on it. So it was kind of, one of those tough lessons, but that's part of the risk of taking on flips. And that's why you want to try to buy the house as cheap as you can up front um, to protect yourself for instances like that on the back end that could happen that you can't predict. I like that. Yep. That's true. Um, price market conditions. And I would also add marketing, right? I mean, the best way to optimize your marketing is probably to have good pictures. Is that something mm-hmm. you agree with? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I always take professional photos of my listings, whether it's my own flip houses or client houses. Um, photos are, are key. If, um, 
and I, and I feel like there's really no excuse nowadays not to have good photos because even the latest phones that are out, you know, if you have to, in a pinch, use your own phone, um, you know, you can use different apps and settings and things like that to get decent pictures. Um, so you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your clients. If you're in real estate to have good photos and even videos, you can now include video tours, um, on different websites as part of your marketing packages. That makes a big difference to be able to include that as part of, um, your marketing presentation. Yeah. I had a vacancy recently on a rental property of mine and I wasn't in town and I found someone to do the pictures, a professional photographer for $59. And they were very professional. The edits were done really well and at least within two days. So. Oh yeah. Professional photos. And it it doesn't, it's not even that expensive. I mean, that was a first time customer deal, $59, but yes, photos are important. And there's plenty of hungry photographers out there who would be willing to take on the job. And, um, you know, if it helps their portfolio too, to be able to include some, um, you know, real estate experience, then a lot of them are willing to do it for um, not a whole lot of money. And, you know, some people think, yeah, but that's just a wasted cost. Why would you put money into that? Um, I would argue, well, look at the days on market, you know, and you've got a great case study right there showing that you got your place leased in two days, largely do um in part to the photos yep. you know time on market is money so that's right. that that saved you the money right there than having to pay perhaps an extra a few weeks or month yeah do you find that buyers negotiate harder knowing that you flip the house yes i do and i think that's a really good question um you've asked a lot of good questions <laughs> <laughs> um I think they do because people are skeptical. They're skeptical of people that are, uh, you know, scams and that are just trying to make a quick buck and they think, oh, well, they probably just kind of put lipstick on the pig, so to speak, (laughs) are afraid that it was just a rush half job. And um, so that's where having good workers is so important um, that you can trust because the last thing you want to do is have to pay to redo work that you've already paid for. And um, I, I've been in that position before and it hurts. Um, I had to have let go of one of my contractors before because he wasn't cutting it. And I had to hire a new painter to come in. And uh, that new painter had to refloat some walls, redo things, which means he then had to repaint and retexture and, you know, kind of go through the whole process all over again. So I basically paid double what I had my budget for painting. And, um, that really hurt. And, um, so I, I, I'm very careful about who I hire now, who my workers are. And, um, you know, because I know that when I have a buyer come to look at the house, they're going to be analyzing me and scrutinizing things, I think that much closer, uh, because they can see that it's a flip, because you can pull up on MLS, that it's sold not that long ago, and uh, that it's now on the market again. So you can tell that it was a flipped property, so to speak. Right. Yeah, that's tough when you have to pay double paint and (laughs) all those holding costs that you mentioned, running the AC and keeping the lawn mowed. So those Mm -hmm. are sort of the downsides. What is the best part about flipping houses? Oh, for me, seeing, seeing it all come together is just amazing. When you have, when you can walk in a house, that's just a complete dump, (laughs) have a vision for it and then see it come to life. And then to see buyers, potential buyers walk into the house on those first open houses that you have when you list it and see their eyes light up when they see the house and be excited about it and want to live there or want to move their family into that house that you transform from a dump into their dream house. Yeah. Amazing. To me, it's a very gratifying feeling to know that like, wow, I... I created this. I had a vision for this and I brought it to life and somebody is proud to now live here. And I've just increased the value for this neighborhood. I've probably made the neighbors happy that they no longer have that eyesore on the street. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, that's, I love that feeling and it's such a high. It makes me want to, you know, go take another one on after doing that and, you know, start the process over again. Laura, this has been my longest podcast. 
Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's because you're so good and you're filled with a wealth of information. So it's been a really, really a pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. I hope uh, we still have at least one listener at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have three because we each have a mom and I'll convince my brother to listen to you. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> How can people find out more about you? Uh, I've got a website, lauragilleryhomes.com, and it's uh, Laura Guillory. Guillory is G-U-I-L-L-O-R-Y. Um, lauragilleryhomes.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. You can kind of find me any of those ways. Excellent. And what's your Instagram? Laura Guillory Homes. Laura Guillory Homes. All yeah. right. I'll take us out. Thank you for joining us, friends. I don't take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with us. I don't have a podcast without you. So thank you. Please subscribe to the blog if you're not already. Also, let Laura and I know what you think about the episode in the comments. You can find me on Instagram at Twitter or and Twitter at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.